1: Welcome to the New
0: Books Network.
1: Welcome to the Why We Argue podcast, the Future of Truth edition. These episodes are made possible by the Future of Truth, a project at the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, generously funded by the University of Connecticut and the Henry Luce Foundation. The episode you're about to listen to is part of a series on Seeing Truth, a museum exhibit and subset of the Future of Truth project that seeks to challenge audiences to see art, science, and truth anew in this political moment. In these episodes, Seeing Truth project leader and art history professor Alexis L. Boylan interviews artists and academics about the relationship between art and science, the role of museums in the production of knowledge, and how we use the visual to make meaning.
2: Hi, everyone. In this interview, I speak with Sarah Willen, with whom I'm co-curating Picturing the Pandemic, an exhibition of images from the Pandemic Journaling Project. The exhibition is a partnership between the Pandemic Journaling Project, which Sarah co-founded, and my exhibition, Seeing Truth, Art, Science, Museums, and Making Knowledge. It will feature images created by people around the globe in telling their pandemic stories. At once devastating, joyful, funny, and tragic, Picturing the Pandemic exhibition asks, What does a pandemic look like? What has COVID-19 helped us or made us see? How has it changed our sense of what counts as true or whose truth counts? The exhibition opens Thursday, October 27th at the Hartford Public Library, and there will be future installations in Providence, Rhode Island, Germany, and Mexico City. Learn more at picturingthepandemic.org. Seeing Truth, an exhibition that explores the relationship between art, science, museums, and the production of knowledge, opens this January 17th, 2023 at the William Benton Museum of Art. Stay tuned for more information about that show. This conversation with Sarah covers topics uh, that touch on both of our exhibits, the practice of journaling, what it means to be an artist, the fact that all knowledge makers have bodies, and much more. Enjoy. Hi everybody, my name is Alexis Boylan, and welcome back to another episode. These aren't really like episodes, but another interview with a fabulous, interesting scholar, artist, scientist, creator, phenomenon. Before we get started, I just wanted to thank, as always, the Loose Foundation for their generous funding of the Seeing Truth exhibition and all of the programming that's going along with it, and of course my colleagues and the people that I have the honor to work with at UCHI, the Yukon Humanities Institute, and finally the Office of the Provost at UConn, who also has generously funded The Future of Truth and Seeing Truth and supports everything that goes on at UConn. So with that, I want to thank my very dear colleague and friend. I probably should admit up front, Sarah, that you're actually a friend. I've actually had many friends on this, but Sarah and I are so friendly that we text, talk, and email because of the project we're going to talk about. Would you say easily 700 times a day in the past two months? For sure. More like six months, actually. I was just thinking all summer we were also like, I'm going to let you introduce yourself, Sarah, because A, because I hate introducing people and B, because I find it fascinating how people introduce themselves. So Sarah, who are you and what are you doing here?
3: What am I doing here? Well, first of all, thank you for putting me here wherever here may be. It's really an honor and a pleasure, and I've been looking forward to it. So, I'm Sarah Willen, and I like to think of myself as kind of a humanist trapped in a social scientist's body.
1: Who's
3: really a writer, but also does other things too. So officially I am an associate professor of anthropology. I'm here at UConn. I also co-direct a research program on global health and human rights. But the reason we get to talk today is that I am also working together with you on an exhibition called Picturing the Pandemic, Images from the Pandemic Journaling Project. And what's sparked that exhibition is indeed the Pandemic Journaling Project, which I'll just say a quick word about since it's part of really who I have become these past couple of years. And that is an online journaling platform that's also a growing research archive of first-person perspectives on this pandemic we've all been living through these past couple of years and it's something that I've had the pleasure of creating together with some amazing colleagues, Kate Mason at Brown University early on, a political scientist as well, Abby Fisher Williamson at Trinity College. So lots of people have helped produce some very cool projects that have very little to do with the training I had as an anthropologist. And that's part of why I'm so excited to be having this conversation with you today.
2: You know, it's very funny. I interviewed earlier, and there'll be an earlier podcast and episode. And if you didn't catch it, you can, after you listen to this, go catch it with two biologists today. And I secretly got them both to admit that they were secretly anthropologists. So I felt very like if this can just be a deterioration of all disciplinary boundaries, then, then we've done magical work. If secretly you're not a social scientist, you're really a humanist. And if you're a humanist, you're really an artist. And if you're an artist, you're really a scientists, like maybe, maybe all these things just, yeah, you're just Sarah Willen. So pandemic journaling project, most people were making sourdough or having actually very bad things happen or working in you know, emergency type situations during the pandemic. What had you creating this journaling project what as as you can probably see in back of sarah sarah has a family sarah has a job at uconn we kept teaching nothing really stopped for us so how in the midst of all the things that were going on and the transitions in your home life and work life did you feel like all the other things you were working on needed to pivot or needed to shift to make space for the pandemic journaling project
3: sure so, you know, here, I, if depending who in the project you asked, you'd hear a slightly different story, of course, but my real, my story, it really starts with the fact that I've always felt that it's useful to keep a journal of some sort, but something I've done since I was a little kid, upstairs in a closet, I have a big box of many journals going back to, you know, when I was about the age, my daughter is now eight, nine, 10. Mm-hmm. And I don't usually look at them. I have very infrequently looked at them, but both the material objects and also the practice of creating them have been really important to me personally as a way to put down the tough and work through the difficult and the perplexing and the scary and the confusing. And so... My first impulse as our world started kind of falling apart and and not making sense anymore was to start writing it down. That was what felt like the natural thing for me to do. And that's like me, the person. And then me, the social scientist thought, oh, we should be collecting people's experiences. This is really important. At some future point, it will be important for people who wanna understand what happened to have some kind of record of what everyday life was like as we faced what felt really like you know like the bottom falling out like everything we knew sort of collapsing before our eyes as we didn't know any longer how to how to be in space with each other how to talk to each other how to set the rules about who could come in and out of the spaces that were most comfortable to us whether it was workspaces or social spaces or home spaces so it was sort of this sense this parallel sense of a personal need to to get it down and a kind of professional sense that someone should really collect stuff that led me to think oh why don't we sort of merge these and create a space where people could do just that for themselves could put their own stories down either because they care and they feel something similar to what i feel or because they too feel like they have something that's worth putting into a, a historical record that might be useful to others in the future. And that became paired with some some motivations of my colleague Kate Mason at, at Brown, who has spent more time thinking at the intersection of anthropology and history than I have. And so she was able to sort of give that impulse a little bit more shape and form from that perspective. And I also over the past couple of years have been doing kind of weird things for an anthropologist, like working with a political scientist who does survey research and sees value in getting large numbers of people responding to the same kinds of questions so that you can know things in a different kind of way than I'm used to learning to know things as an anthropologist. I wanna to listen to stories and I wanna work through stories and and social scientists who want you know big, Ends big numbers of people in their samples want to be able to detect patterns with large large data sets and so I was this political scientist Abby Fisher Williamson was able at the very beginning to help us say well you got to collect some data on people so that you're able to to know whose voices you're hearing. And so there were, you know, these different threads coming together and what emerged very quickly under these, these really tough circumstances we all were living through was a project that really did have legs and that has opened up in a lot of new directions and been very meaningful. And, you know, in that count, I would say the last bit that's worth mentioning is just that I think a lot of us were really struggling, especially in the early months of the pandemic, to sort of figure out if there were some way we could do something meaningful right so some of us were trying to entertain ourselves or keep ourselves busy and some of us were thinking like what skills do i have that can be of some kind of value to humanity in some way and this was what i had to offer together with this group of amazing colleagues and and we you know it feels like we really did have the ability to offer something that's been meaningful for different people in different ways and so that's that's pretty cool
2: it's interesting to me, and again, having done a number of these interviews with people with artists or with people who work more with curatorial, and then today with scientists, but everybody has a different data is so fundamental. And yet like data is so it's useless if it doesn't have any variability to it, right? Like it's, it's too specific. If it's just one voice, you need to have data on a lot of voices. You need to reflect the diversity of Life of experience of creativity, all that sort of thing. I just thought it was interesting because I think that you, your explanation starts off in this really deeply personal place, mm-hmm. but then it also moves to the fact that, like that, it, you sort of admit in in your story, like your own journals are data sets. They're data sets that are specifically about you, but to someone else their their data sets which is is is, is, it's the fascinating way in which the journaling project moves between various sort of localities of like what is my worth what is my value what is any of our value? What is any of our worth? And then how do we ever quantify or historicize that? <laughs> I actually wanted to poke back a little bit. Eight's pretty young to just decide to start journaling. Like, mm. did your parents throw a journal at you? I've tried to journal. Journaling seems very good. But like many other things that I try that I know are good for me, I cannot make it a habit. So I'm interested in sort of at eight years old or 10 or whenever you started at this idea of sort of like starting something that felt for you, like you wanted to keep it through because you're not eight anymore. And that is actually a long time doing this recording. And also then, so that's one thing like, which is, can you talk a little bit about how you started the habit or what? what felt urgent about it as a child, and then certainly what continues that. But do you think, even though you said early on that you don't really reread them, do do you feel like what you contribute or what you add to your journal has shifted? Like that the data actually that you put down might be different now than, I mean, of course, right? Your life is different, but that the nature of what you see has changed or that sort of thing, yeah.
3: Sure, yeah. The question of what motivated me to start keeping a journal, I honestly don't know, you know, probably someone gave me a cool journal and I thought, oh, that looks fun, a book I can write in. I love it, <laughs> right? It's very transgressive <laughs> so to write in a book. Um, and in fact, I was given a a beautiful handmade leather-bound journal as a gift after I wrapped up like my first real job many, many years ago. We're talking circa 1998, and I've had a lot of difficulty writing in it because it's just so beautiful. I tried, and I sort of stopped and started a couple times, but there are maybe 10 pages filled of this you know, beautiful book. In the meantime, I've filled dozens of other notebooks, books, journals, Think. So there's something very scary to me about the idea that my journals might be someone else's data. And that in fact is sort of a question I'm gonna have to go write down later because in thinking about what people have put into their journals for the journaling project, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to create a journal that you know from the get-go is data for somebody? but that's not how i think of my journals and in fact i've kept my own journals as i've sort of gone through the these motions of being part of the journaling project too and the voice is different and the activity is different and the objectives are different so i mean i would say there is a common thread throughout for me and it's that journaling has always been a space of a certain kind of work a certain kind of working not not labor in a you know sort of capital sense but Working through—it's been about process. It's been about using my body, right? I'm a, I, there's a, the handwriting, and you know I love pens and ink and the, the feel of ink on paper, right? So there's this sort of visceral and material dimension of journaling that's really about process and sitting with something that's that's causing some kind of confusion or distress or pain, and in finding a language to talk about it, claiming space in the world, and also maybe achieving some kind of insight or perspective that might help help me move toward a, a place that's more comfortable to inhabit.
2: I did a project a couple of years ago on an artist, Ellen Emmett-Rann, and she was a big diary keeper, and which is very helpful because like many women of her time, there's virtually nothing else Knowable about her. Like, if she didn't write it herself, there would be no historical record. You know, I mean, there would be a historical record. She lived and sold paintings, but there would be nothing of her. She started everything with what the weather was. And often it would be several paragraphs. But I also love this sort of idea of like the way in which it really did seem for her as an artist to anchor herself in the moment in the weather was sort of crucial do you have any like ticks like that like things that you you use to get started I mean I imagine that in journaling there are just some days where you just are you fastidious in your own journaling about no okay so whenever you want to write is when you write have you ever missed more than like like a month or a week I sometimes go years
3: without touching it Oh, okay. So in that sense, you know, if we think of the word journal coming from the word for day, right? Or the word diary coming from the word for, it's, for me, it's never been a daily practice. It's been a, a, an activity that lives as a resource that I can tap into when I need it. And there are times when I need to journal, you know, a couple times a week. And there are times when I might go a year
2: or more
1: yeah.
2: and have no need or interest. So I think, and not to bore everyone who has to listen to this, but I think Sarah, we should talk about this because I actually think that one of the reasons I've never really gotten into journaling is because I stop and then I'm like, well, yeah, so I, I didn't do it for two weeks. That's it. Like it's, it's, I just, I, I quit it. It didn't feel like something that you could pick up and start again. I think maybe it became like a kind of a thing, like, like if you're a kid and you have an instrument and you don't practice, then you know, why bother? You're not going to be a musician. It's not going to work. It's not you. But that's such a bad way of thinking about journaling. And your way is so much better and so much more freeing than to think of it as something that you have to do, but as something that occasionally it's like a thing that you could bring out. You are a very verbal person. So first of all, it sounds like you never, you're not a computer journaler, not just because you love your pens, but that's not your method. And then do you ever are you ever drawn to draw or scribble or like visually do something with words that is different than paragraph sentence form? So, no. Okay.
3: I I don't. And this, I know one of the things you'd like to talk about today is the question of art and what is art and who creates art and who can create art. I've always seen myself as someone who has absolutely no capacity whatsoever to create art
2: that is not made of words and so we are both such boundary drawn people (laughs) i don't know how we both ended up academics it's just a shocking (laughs) thing but and here's the but
3: this is something that has really been transformed for me in working on the pandemic journaling project because from the very beginning it was evident to the entire team that this had to be something that would attract a lot of different people with a lot of different ideas of what journaling is, or it could be. And then we also had to kind of crack the whole form open and say, whatever you think journaling is like, screw that. Like it, it might be that for someone, but it doesn't have to be that for you. For you, it can be something totally different. For example, you can talk into your phone and record that, Mm -hmm. and that'll be a journal entry or you can take a photograph Mm -hmm. and talk about it you know orally or or in writing. And that can be a journal entry. And so in trying to create something, and we did a lot of other things to try and create a platform that really would be accessible and interesting to people of all ages, of a really wide variety of backgrounds, people with different levels of comfort with technology. And in trying to do that work of creating a really accessible platform, I found myself beginning to see that you could journal with images in ways that had never occurred to me. And that's been really exciting. And so then I started taking photographs. A lot of really terrible ones. But but the point and here here the thing is the (laughs) point, right? I haven't thought of them as art. I've thought of them in a lot of different ways. And it and the the process of kind of converting or inviting my mind to convert this idea of journaling as i've described it into something that could take a different form or happen in a different medium has been really exciting because it's been a really playful experimental kind of thing and you know i feel like we're talking a lot about like me and my journaling but but the at the core you know this this whole endeavor has really been an opportunity to think about how we all can can document mm-hmm. can document our truths can see can look can share and i think for me that's really a piece that you know i'd love to talk about more that it's it's been about the sharing right and the and the claiming right the claiming that what i see deserves to be seen by other people it deserves attention my vision matters right yeah yeah and then that in producing words or an image or some kind of narration and insisting that it deserves to exist and deserves other people's attention like that that's a very particular kind of act and a really important act sometimes a political act sometimes not a political act but a a very particular kind of act that needs to be celebrated and that we need to kind of create space to allow to happen
2: i'm not going to argue with you but i'm going to say that i think in this in this moment in our society, is always a political act because I think that there are very aggressive forces at work, very political forces that are about power and control that are attempting to systematically shut down even before people allow themselves to get started. Mm. The idea that they can contribute, that they have anything to say, that anybody wants to hear them. I mean, I think that that's always been at work. I actually think that that is keyed up now to such a point where often powerful entities don't even have to do that work because people are so self-censoring that they're just like really, i don't have the right to do that i don't have the right to say that i don't know enough that there's so much sort of fear of expression and of being wrong and of doing it wrong all jokes aside about making sourdough i think that there is something empowering about people being like oh shit i can actually cook for myself i can make things i think One of the things that when you and I first talked about the project, I I was very sort of interested in is thinking about this idea of the pandemic, not now, but in the future. And I guess I sort of wanted to pivot back to what is your greatest fear about what the pandemic has done to us, will do to us? I think in some ways the pandemic has verified some ideas about the way that our society is structured. It has verified ideas about how we value bodies or don't value bodies. But I get a sense when you talk about this journaling project that this is actually rooted in a real concern that you have about the after effects of the pandemic, that this isn't actually just business as usual, the shit show that is modern living. Behind this is a fear that the pandemic is a turning point or could be your voice seems to anticipate or fear something about the pandemic. And maybe I'm just reading into that, but I was just sort of wondering about what this work is you looking to avoid or to perhaps preemptively speak to or what you think the pandemic has done to us in a bigger sense.
3: yeah. It's such a good question. And there are different ways to think about it. And I think I'll offer two sort of different ways to respond. I mean, on one level, I think we have this incredible opportunity because this horrible, devastating crisis has you know in addition to wreaking havoc on people and lives and families and communities it has also laid bare like you said it's laid bare structures of injustice and inequity and and not just you know what's the structures as we see them on the surface but the roots of them and the histories and you know the the foundations that are below the surface that have been harder to see. And I think we're seeing, you know, we're living in a moment in which there's horrible hurricane that's been ripping through Florida and we're hearing on the news and seeing on the news of houses that have been ripped off their foundations. And so you see, you see what we weren't able to see before. And in a similar sense, we're able to see some of the structural and, and fundamental causes of the, the, Profound inequities and injustices in our society in ways that we weren't able to before. And, and to me that suggests and I think to our whole team, you know, on the the journaling project, it suggests that we have this incredible opportunity to open our eyes and see what we hadn't seen before, and then act on what we're learning by being able to, to perceive differently. I think there's, on one hand, there's this tremendous fear of missing that opportunity. If you read like Ed Young writing in The Atlantic or, you know, there are lots of really good journalists writing about how we're missing it. We're already ignoring, we're already looking away, we're already missing the point, we're already failing to institute the kind of changes in policy that that could have been instituted a long time ago because we already knew what had to change or that could be instituted now because we, we now really, really know what needs to change, so the opportunity is being missed. And it Will continue to be missed in kind of a a broad scale. I think very, very frighteningly and unfortunately. But I am not like I'm just you know maybe a naive optimist. But I think we still have to try in a smaller sense to to learn what we can. And those of us who are able to take the time to look and and see. To, to talk about that, to talk about it with other people around us, for those of us who teach to talk about it with our students, for those of us who are students to talk about it with our colleagues and our peers and our friends and our parents to start conversations that might not otherwise have happened. And so part of what we're trying to do with this project is instigate some of those conversations. And then I guess, you know, in terms of the, the fear. <sighs> I think we're living in a moment in which really exciting things are happening in the world of scholarship, where we're beginning to see how how very much we've, we've done a poor job over generations of producing knowledge, um, of making space for voices that can be the producers of knowledge, of making buildings, libraries, right, material spaces in which the knowledge of all sorts of different groups of people can can put what they know and what they want to be preserved and what they want to be archived and what they want to be accessible to future generations. And so you know, the other sort of piece of this is that I, I want very much in the future for there to be a little bit less of a gap in the array of material resources available to people who want to understand this time. If we can do a little tiny bit to to change the landscape of archival materials mm-hmm. for those looking back, then I think that that will be some kind of moderate or, or mild to moderate success. I fear the missed opportunity. I feel the risk that there will be a missed opportunity in the future to to understand all the complexity and messiness and variability and variation of experiences of this global crisis right. and in order to try a tiny little bit to mitigate the risk that risk yeah. i want to be part of this team and i am part of this team that's been trying really hard to make that sort of space where All sorts of people, you know, whether it's a 16 year old living in a a relatively, you know, neglected or or a deeply neglected community outside of Johannesburg, South Africa, or a retired widow living in Minnesota, or someone who's been part of the, the, you know, industry of making film in Los Angeles and has been carving out space as a kind of strong voice for changing gay realities in the United States, having lived through Stonewall and beyond, like whoever you are, I want you to feel like your voice matters. And, and if we can use and leverage digital technologies, which we've been trying to do to, to make space for that to happen, then then
2: that's maybe potentially going to make a tiny bit of a difference. Right. Well, I mean, change the archive, change the world, right? Like change history. Adam Gopnik has this quote that's sort of like, what is history? Is it just a bunch of sad stories? Well, it can be, but it can also be this beautiful story of diversity and different, like different sight and that sort of thing.
0: So this episode is brought to you by sax.com.
2: Speaking of confronting different voices, I should just get in here because Sarah won't say it about herself. But Sarah and her colleagues grew this and, and the pandemic journaling project is now this, it is in fact a vast archive of voices that is international that used to collect. Because of course, the pandemic might have been declared over by various people at various moments. But I think we all understand that we will be and 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 that the entire world is different, that there were literally millions of people who were here before the pandemic who are no longer here. And so just that shifts the narrative and the dialogue and demographics and and our data. And out of this project have emerged all of these really interesting articles and investigations by Sarah and her colleagues. But Sarah really is a medical anthropologist. So how what misfortune fell upon you that you decided to get involved with doing an exhibition and dealing with images? You have yourself admitted that you do not doodle in your journals. That is not a personal thing. And we'll get into that in a moment. But what made you feel like moving What was already an incredibly productive knowledge making and knowledge processing and archival activity into one that is temporal and one that is visual. Mm -hmm. In other words, what had you working with? random art historians, and will you ever do it again?
3: <laughs> so first of all, I'll answer the second question. Absolutely. I will absolutely do this again if I will be invited to to be participating in, in something collaborative along these lines. When we started the Pandemic Journaling Project, we really wanted to make sure that there was a way for people to share they were contributing with others. And so we created this web page and we called the Featured Entries page. You can access it through our website. And it's essentially a curated page where we're sharing visual material, so photographs, or text, or audio contributions that people are explicitly giving us permission to share publicly. Mm-hmm. And from the very beginning, curating that page largely was my responsibility. And so I spent enormous amounts of time trying to think about how to curate that page. What should be shared? What maybe shouldn't be shared? What what were we doing in choosing to share a particular swatch of text or a particular image. And in doing that curating work, I was learning to think about not just these materials, but also what it meant to interface non-academics with these materials and that was new for me and it was different and it was scary because the, the way we designed it it's not like facebook where you can like or you know comment. There's no option for interacting. So it was just putting things before people, but then we would sometimes get emails or people would write in their next week's journal, something about something that they read or saw the previous week. So we began to see a kind of interactivity and also a certain kind of community, a certain sense of community emerging through engagement with these shared materials that I was curating. That was really exciting and it made me feel very powerful, not always in ways I felt prepared for. So I think the work of curating that page over a period of, you know, by the time we started talking, I'd already been doing it for, I guess, a year and a half or so, really kind of primed me for a conversation about how to take a selection of these materials and put them quite purposefully in a place at a time for certain people to engage with in ways that I felt I didn't really know how to shape, but I felt like I had some ideas for how how I might want to shape that encounter with some of these materials. And, and in doing that, you know, I felt like I've had to sort of at, at moments in, in our collaborative process step back and remind myself what it felt like to do that curation, you know, in September of 2020 or November of 2020, because what people were sharing, you know, sometimes it was sourdough. You know, beautiful baked loaves. But sometimes it was images or narratives of extraordinary pain, extraordinary loss. And, 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 and some of that feels really important to include in, in creating an exhibition of these materials because you know obviously we don't you know like any text any image any piece of art whoever creates it has no control over the way it's received on the other side but there are images that for many people will spark something pretty powerful and when you know that you have to sort of think about what you're doing when you put that image before people so there's challenge, fear, excitement, and also a sense that I'd already been doing something for a period of time that felt a little bit like what it is we're doing in curating an exhibition together now.
2: So do you want to talk to people about picturing the pandemic and sort of what it is that as co-curator you put together and and how this sort of marks perhaps a shift in how the archive is going to be used as data? What does it mean when these images leave their data sets and end up on a wall? Mm -hmm. How does that feel? And what is picturing the pandemic?
3: Oh boy. Well, we're co-curating. So I feel like anything I say, you know got another voice right here that you can step in and and modify. Correct. I mean, I think I would love to ask you that question. Like, what are, what are we doing? (laughs) What are you doing? Nope, not fair. I will tell
2: everybody that we are a month away from the show opening. So I'm really being mean to Sarah by asking this question. (laughs) I think it was probably more clear what we were doing six months ago, and it will be more clear in exactly a month. Right now it feels, at least for me, a little bit like just a, a, a lot of things coming together and a lot of deadlines. And and that sort of thing. For me though, I mean, I'm used to hanging shit on a wall. That's what I do. I like to do that. I do that all the time. And our collaboration came out of this idea that some of the things that I was working on and seeing truth, which are the sort of the, the collision of art and science, and the collision of this sort of desire to create knowledge and the visualization of that desire to create knowledge. And is at times incredibly beautiful and productive, and is at times incredibly destructive and malicious and detrimental. So uh, just to give our audience a little sense of sort of how we came together, Sarah was at the University of Connecticut's Humanities Institute, one of the Future of Truth scholars. The whole problem that I have with this whole project is that truth is a very fussy word for me. I tend to try to stay away from it in lots of moments, but I have enjoyed tussling with it. But I know as an anthropologist, truth is a really fussy word that has gotten all of you in tons of trouble, like historically as a field. That's sort of the backstory of how these two things sort of came together. But I think what did moving into an exhibition mean in terms of you and the project? Mm -hmm. Because you also haven't worked with visual images. I mean, I know you have images in, in your books and that sort of thing. But working with images as images has not been something you've done.
3: No, it's not. So I think... It's been really exciting. And it's it's exciting because we've been talking about each of our projects independently and listening to each other talk about them. And I've watched some earlier episodes and we've, you know, obviously been in conversation about what we're doing together. But in listening to you now, I'm realizing in some respects I think what we're doing is, you know, if we're taking the data out of the data set and putting it in a different space. Images and narratives are Are data for social scientists in the sense that they provide an opportunity to encounter for people to encounter one another in sort of unusual or unconventional ways, right? So in some ways, a really good, meaningful, flowing ethnographic research interview is like an exciting conversation between two people who've known each other for a really long time because it flows, because there are surprises, because there are digressions, because each person learns and because each person comes out a little bit transformed. and. And yet, in some respects, a research interview, an ethnographic interview is totally different because the two people who are engaged in that moment of encounter may never have had occasion to encounter one another otherwise. And, you know, as we train students to conduct ethnographic interviews and it's something we're doing now with the project we really think a lot about what it means to create that that moment and how to make it work and how to to come to it with an open mind and recognize that there's there's transformative potential in those moments that we can learn things through human encounter that we can't learn learn in, in, in other modalities So for me the exhibition will work if people encounter, not just, you know, a printed image on a wall or in a case, but if we somehow succeed in creating opportunities for visitors to encounter the people who created them, right? If if people can stand before an image and you know, even if it's for a fleeting moment, have a flash. And it won't happen before every image. But if you know, there are two or three moments in walking through this exhibition that we've created that each visitor says, oh, that person's world is not my world, or, oh, that person's world is my world, but it looks totally different, or, oh, I, I never would have thought to capture my experience in just that way, but boom,
2: they really got it. That will be a success in, in my view. I think what's so interesting is that's there's two things that have to happen. It's so much intimacy, it's so intimate. Like I will say that that is what I love about the potential of a museum or a gallery or a library space. That is what I love about images. is this potential to have this, intimacy that in many ways everything around us encourages us not to have to you know to wall ourselves off for or save for only special people but just to sort of have that but it also is so much trust right to be willing to allow that to happen in a public space with other people with objects that you don't know anything about it's daunting but it's exciting to sort of imagine creating that kind of potential
3: there's one other piece i really feel like i have to say and that's that and you know this, but I think it's important for those who are watching to know this too. Every piece that we're going to exhibit, we're exhibiting with the permission of the people who create yeah. Yeah. and you know it's it's and this is maybe where there's something to talk about in terms of like what is art, right? An artist presumably creates a piece of art with the intention of putting it before people. Maybe not. You know, there's a conversation to have there too. But I would imagine that with great frequency people making art want it to be encountered and the people who were participating in the the pandemic journaling project may or may not want that yeah. and so that's something that we've had to to look into with each and every image and make sure that that these are images that we're sharing with the blessing of their creators yeah. and there have been images that we have not been able to share either because people you know, say no or because they don't respond to us. But there's been a tremendous amount of care that's gone into culling the images that are going to be part of this exhibition. And I think that's something that's also really important. So, you know, when we think about the intimacy or the opportunities for a kind of intimate encounter that we create anytime we decide what to put in an exhibition, there's sort of maybe one or maybe couple, a couple added layers of of intimacy and care that have gone into this particular exhibition because of the choices that have been made before things ever get to the printer.
2: When we went into the project, I I remember saying to Sarah, don't don't love anything because you never know who's going to because it, it is a giant risk to put yourself out there even if you know you'll never see anybody or hear anybody's response and i mean that's the great sort of amazing funny tragic part of being an artist right is that all artists want often is to hear feedback and often even if they have a very successful show or career that is actually not available to them but the people who gave us permission are, are being incredibly brave i think because it is it is a it is a test of sort of faith it is just a, a leap to sort of be willing to put yourself out there but i i do think that you you, you were you were very optimistic about lots of people being like Cool. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I think I think more people are gonna be hesitant with reason, like with just sort of like that's my image. It's too revealing. I think that people who do that and who say yes are brave, but that doesn't actually mean that people who say no are are not. It just means that they have different, they have different relations to the object that we have to respect. One of the through lines of this exhibition is about how often museums have shown things that they did not have permission to even own, that they have shown. without the understanding and agreement and respect of the people who made them. And, and that that is actually a very ugly part of both anthropology and art history, is how often we have used this quest for data sets and this argument about the necessity of obtaining knowledge to be the reason that we know better and that this art has to be out there. And it's important for this piece to be in this museum so that people can see it. Who cares what its original meaning was? We have spent a lot of time talking about the ethics of this show and the ethics that we want to promote. But it is an exciting, I think, historical moment in that I think we are being far more honest as academics and curators and uh, scholars, about how we how we obtain knowledge. There are choices to be made, and that we are then also ethically bound to those choices. Like that, that actually matters. And it it is representative of who we are then. Yeah. 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 So I'm gonna get into I'm gonna reveal to the audience now an ongoing issue that Sarah and I have, and that Sarah has alluded to a couple of times, which is that. When I get tired and sloppy, I call every person who has made an object for this project an artist, and I call every single one of their objects art. And I can explain my reasons, but it's not my interview. But at almost every turn, Sarah reminds me that they are not artists and they are not art and that this is part of a journaling project. And so I want to actually hear from you because I I actually love this as a sign of our disciplinary spaces and also about what we were just talking about, like ethical positionings and, and, and that sort of thing, because I love, I mean, you are correct and you are wrong. (laughs) Right. I mean, me too. I am correct and I am wrong, but so talk to us about your relationship to the word art Mm -hmm. as a person, Mm -hmm. and then as a scholar, and then why you have balked at the idea of outside of their permission
3: mm-hmm.
2: ever talking about these objects and their makers as art and artists.
3: Mm-hmm. I love this question and I love this source of friction and tension because it's been fun to think with and 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 struggle with a little bit and quibble about. And I, I'll start by saying that I also appreciate that you asked me to respond first as a person because I don't know to what extent this reaction I'm having is a function of my disciplinary training or to what extent it's a function of just, you know, my own idiosyncratic experience. So the first thing I guess I should say is that I am part of a family of artists and my my brother and sister-in-law are both conservatory trained artists. My brother-in-law's a painter. I'm sitting in a room with some of his paintings right now. My sister-in-law does in different forms of material art involving sewing and sculpture and, and also painting and a variety of media. And, and then my, my father-in-law is a very serious amateur painter and has been his entire life. And I'm also a parent of a child who's very interested in art and spent the summer watching YouTube videos, learning how to draw. Um, She's working toward a self-portrait, but learning how to draw an eye. So I'm surrounded by people for whom art is a very, very lively category and a way of self-identification. And all of those different modes of self-identification are very alien to me. And so because I'm a word person, I feel a kind of need to step back and not try and encroach on the territory of those who claim art as as something that they do from a place of commitment, whatever commitment that might be or what, whatever that commitment might look like. So in part, it's out of, I feel a sense of respect of not wanting to, to claim that something belongs to the world of art when I don't know if that's a claim that would be made by the creator of that object. But also, as I mentioned earlier, I can barely draw a straight line. I can draw a heart and I can draw a tulip and I can draw a decent tree that will satisfy an elementary school student. It will look like a tree. It will be recognizable as a tree. But I've always, you know, I mean, I'm being facetious, but I've never seen myself as someone who has the capacity to make art in, you know, out of materials. Disciplinarily speaking, or or from, you know, a scholarly standpoint, I'll confess I know very little about the anthropology of art. It's not a space I've really had a chance to delve into. So I'm completely inexpert and inarticulate in speaking about that area of my own discipline. And at the end of the day, when we're talking about, you know, how to name and or label or categorize the materials that we're working with, I think I have felt a continual need to, to To give people space, and we've had people who call themselves artists who talk about what they contribute as art. We have people who've contributed photographs of their paintings, or photographs of sculpture, or digital art that they've created. You know, so those who claim art as as the name for what they're doing, that's great. But those who don't make that claim, for those who don't want to make that claim, I'm deeply reluctant to make it on their behalf for, you know, for some of these reasons, perhaps more idiosyncratic than
2: disciplinary. Right. Right. I mean, I think it's, as I said, it's an ongoing sort of thing. I find it fascinating because I think even in your response, it's about your authority and other people's authority. And I do think that in terms of the project of the seeing truth project, like authority creates All of these boundaries and these lines which can and cannot be crossed and you know uh, uh, art is about capitalism Mm -hmm. it is defined through capitalism and is defined through labor and economics and product worth and all of these other things or it doesn't have to be that at all it can have this whole other potential but i find it very interesting because i think that um I mean, it gets at the very heart of what the Seeing Truth show is about, which is this sort of way in which this idea of art is a structural part of your family life. Yeah. And then it becomes a way of looking at objects and of looking and 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 expressing respect for other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's I mean, if you think about it, we do that all the time, but that's a lot of heavy work for a word that for a lot of people can could mean freedom and creativity, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not on you or on me or on anybody. It's just that we make these ideas do a lot of work because I think everyone has a personal relationship to the word art mm-hmm. and it's always deeply personal and and and, and about your family. Mm-hmm. I was shown art. I was not shown art. My mother is an artist. My father is an artist. There's a lot of narratives about sort of failed artistic potential and talent. Mm-hmm. And so I actually asked us to get at this because I think it's important for all of us to sort of what what do we give this word and what might we take back from this word? And it's been one of the sort of great joys of working with you is that actually having that kind of, it's disciplinary and it's personal, right? Like that I have different associations with the word. It has been really fun to sort of work through that word as actually then... Um, bringing us together in a certain way even though we don't settle in the same sort of place so so speaking of art and not art now the the super fun question or what i always think is the super fun question instigator object would you pick sarah which oh. instigator objects from the american natural history museum although we do have objects also from the benton and the dodd center the Dodd archives rather but which instigator object did you pick that was provocative to you Uh uh-huh so
3: i had difficulty choosing one
2: Uh uh-huh yes
3: i chose two and i chose them for very different reasons or they chose me i chose them i don't know how it all worked first the polar bear diorama from the american museum of natural history i i love first of all like an old wooden box with paint that's chipping off like just the materiality of it has a certain Sparks a certain joy, has a certain fascination for me. But in terms of, you know, the, there are two things. So I, I love the way in which it represents an effort to communicate, to create a moment of encounter. And I found myself in really sitting with it and looking at it, I found myself trying to put myself into the, the mindset of someone who had never seen a polar bear
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: and of someone who had never seen a, an image on the internet of a starving polar bear.
2: Right, oh, right, okay, right.
3: So so there are sort of those two layers, right, of, you know, what do we see if we're just encountering this extraordinary creature engaged in the business of sustenance, which involves the destruction of another life, right? And there's beauty to that, and there's color, and there's power, and there's majesty, and then, you know, as a 2022 viewer there are these other layers that that change how i see what's in that diorama and that make it very very different from what one would have seen had one been you know on the you know, sitting in a place where that truck arrived and and opened up that blue box and boom.
2: Right. Let me just help our, our viewers a little bit. We'll show the image for the people who are, are going to be watching the video, but for people who are on the podcast, Sarah's referencing, it's a, it's a small diorama. And actually, Sarah, you'll get a kick out of this. So first of all, that diorama is going to be in the Seeing Truth show. It's coming from the American Natural History Museum and it's coming here. And one of the things I love about it is that it's like a reveal, like you put it out and then the The students, the children would sit in front and then they would lift up the one piece of wood and it would reveal the diorama. And then all of these little mini dioramas would be then fit into a special made truck that would then basically go up and down New York State, bringing the Natural History Museum and polar bears to children throughout the state. And, and you know, of course, with the hopes that one day they would come to New York City, they would come to the Big Apple and go to the Natural History Museum. And indeed, the Natural History Museum is one of the most frequented, you know, I mean, it is where... Internationally and nationally, you know, when people come to New York City, that is a location that they go, and chances are that they will see at least one diorama, you know, right away, right out of the gate, if they walk into the Natural History Museum. I love too, Sarah, your example on a personal level because I'm I'm loving that a polar bear has forever changed mm. that. The associations that people in the middle of the century, of the 20th century had with polar bears is one that you and I will never have with polar bears. The polar bears are forever captured for us in a very different narrative, which is about the power of visual culture and how a polar bear is never a polar bear is never a polar bear. Representation means everything. but, But yeah, way to bring down the polar bear diorama. People love it. But you're right. It's a very profound object. But what was your second object?
3: Yeah, so it was it's profound and there it's there's something haunting about it as a yep. contemporary viewer. The other object was Lincoln Ellsworth's crampons, which in a certain respect, there's a kind of resonance for me between the crampons and the polar bear diorama because each of them if you look at them they're two entirely different things i mean yes each is about a pole and the cold and encountering the unknown and a certain kind of imperialist colonial white man conquering the unknown narrative of how we we ought to be in the world and in the earth or on the earth but but what i love most about it and i this is what i first thought the the when i first saw that image many months ago and i've loved it ever since is that they're they're tools that facilitate a completely different way of encountering, you know, nature, but also reality, and that facilitate the narration of stories that wouldn't be possible without their existence, right? This existence of this, you know, tiny little carefully crafted pair of metal objects with straps that afford us or that afforded people in the time in which, you know, also Stories were being created and circulated, an opportunity to experience and encounter the world anew. And I find that really inspiring because I think, in some respects, in the, and I, you know, I, I, I will tie this back to the pandemic journaling project, but we too have leveraged technology to make certain ways of encountering the world other people, humanity, human experience, nature, right? A, a, a virus is a, a dimension of nature, right? We're seeing ways in which technology can afford new modes of encounter and new kinds of stories and new modes of storytelling that wouldn't otherwise be possible. And so I think, you know, we could we could look at those crampons and see very dark stories, a very dark side, or we can kind of block that off, bracket it off as you know some of us like to do and and think more about the the ways in which a certain technological innovation can facilitate new ways of being in the world and that i find super inspiring
2: Way to turn it around. I love the crampons and definitely wanted them in the show. And they're definitely going to be another one of the objects that's going to be at the William Benton Museum when the show opens. To remind everybody that they're just all, like, we're all bodies. We all have feet. I remember when I first saw the crampons, I was wearing very uncomfortable shoes in New York City. And as anybody who has spent a day in the city knows, like, it affects everything about that day if you are just like if you have a blister like it's just we're we're bodies and at the end we are all just trying to not have blisters like (laughs) and 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 not have blisters at important moments when we want to have something happen so I too sort of see those crampons as both beautifully optimistic and like we can get there and we can do it. We are a a people that are interested in what our world looks like. And also just these people who are bound to these physical things that we're trapped in for the whole of our story. And, and, and it's good to remember that. And also just also the other part that you said, like it's also individuals who create, narratives of colonialism and exploration as nation building and all of those other things like they all had to slip on crampons at some point in time and that's helpful to remember too all right last question last question that I've asked everybody everybody tries to say can I have two and my response is no so you were allowed two instigator objects you were allowed only one truth Sarah tell me something that you know is true and then tell me why you know it's true tell me a truth
3: Yeah. I know that words can change the world. I know that stories can change people's lives. And I know it's true because I've had the privilege of having it happen to me. And I've had the privilege of seeing it happen for other people as an effect of my own words and there are lots of examples i could give but i think you know as a as a teacher as an educator one of the most rewarding things that's happened to me in my life is having a conversation with someone who encountered me in a learning space as a student as a mentee who is motivated to come back to me and talk about how their life has grown, changed, transformed as a result of a moment that I had the privilege of facilitating. And I could come up with, you know, many moments of my own, but to be in the position of the educator who's given the responsibility and the privilege of using words, and now I think with a little bit more confidence, also images, Mm -hmm. to invite people to encounter the world differently. I mean, that's like what greater privilege, right? It's... It's a joy, it can be really frightening to have that responsibility, but to know that the things that, you know, when we make these vibrations with our mouths in the air, that people's lives can be different after that, that's that's pretty amazing. And there's some pretty powerful truth in that, in my opinion.
2: Fantastic. What a very optimistic and powerful way to end. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Last plug, so much the me. pandemic, which will open on October 27th. And if you are not able to see it in Hartford, don't worry about it. First of all, it will live in different iterations online. Second of all, it will be appearing again in Providence, Rhode Island, and then it will be crossing the ocean and will be in various locations in germany so you will have many opportunities to see it and hopefully it will expand even beyond that right sarah so we can just keep we can keep doing this that's
3: the hope awesome
2: thanks for having me thank you take care bye-bye
1: you've been listening to a special seeing truth episode of the why we argue podcast future of truth edition many thanks to toby napolitano at the University of California, Merced, who handles our sound. And thanks to our sponsors, the University of Connecticut Humanities Institute, the Henry Luce Foundation, and Vanderbilt University. The Why We Argue podcast is a proud member of the New Books Network.